This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Great to have you here with us. Libby will be back tomorrow. We are coming up on a somber anniversary, which is well remembered by the 45-plus crowd, Zoomers, as coined by Moses Neimer. Princess Diana died in that horrific car crash 25 years ago this coming Wednesday. It was upsetting for so many of us because we had watched Diana overcome a loveless marriage with Prince Charles. To embark on a meaningful life of charity work, most notably with AIDS patients and through the International Red Cross for the removal of landmines. Diana also raised awareness and advocated for ways to help people with mental illness and cancer recovery. Princess Diana was also a fashion icon in the 80s and 90s. She was photogenic and beautiful, and at 36, gone way too soon. Joining us to reflect on Princess Diana's life and her tragic death, our Zoomer squad, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating and policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Hello, squad. Hey, Hi there, Jane. Jane. Hi, everyone. Peter, I'll begin with you since everythingzoomer.com has been posting a variety of stories on Diana, her legacy uh, as you imagine it. Well, I, um, I mean, I, I saw her just as everyone else did, you know, as, as how you aptly described at the beginning. But I, I asked um, our fashion director, Derek Chetty, to, like, what, what was it about her that sort of made her more than, uh, you know, th- this sort of humanitarian or princess or it just made her more and he, he said that um, she had this charisma that movie stars of old had like Marilyn Monroe or um, help me out here so you know just someone who um, had it all but also had had something that people just were immensely attracted to and sort of in awe of and so he compared her to to the old-fashioned movie stars and and she had that grip on our imagination, and and so when she left at too early an age, um, we were shocked. Like the the world was stunned. I, re- I remember people in England just sort of completely stunned by it all, and and sort of gathering in these shocked memorials to to sort of uh, try to unpack what had happened. And uh, so so she had it all, and she also had that that sort of some special something that that. Uh, you know, movie stars have over us and, and have that hold over us. And, and that's that what that's what her legacy is to me. And, and Peter, for those of us here in Toronto, southern Ontario, who were absorbing the news as a journalist, that was happening late at night, right? Because it was early in the morning Paris time. So it was starting to develop when a lot of us were going to bed. So not finding out about it in some cases until the next day. Right. And, and all the confusion around what had happened and you know, so so there was that 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 whole sort of mystery behind it all mm-hmm. too, that added to the uh, to her mystique. David, uh, your thoughts as we approach twenty five years? Well, I think there's two aspects for me. One is the personal tragedy, which I think comes first. You have to remember the person, and she died too young, and she was uh, she battled certain demons. She was courageous in, in groundbreaking ways, and I think that the the tragedy is her actual death. I don't think we need to project her into a symbol of many other things. But in fact, she was, and she became uh, very influential, I think. Uh, you know, when Tony Blair uttered those fateful words, she was the people's princess. And sort of, you know, the queen and the royal family were engulfed by that wave of emotion. And I think she represents the first uh, foundational crack, maybe, in how the monarchy was forced to evolve mm-hmm. uh, to take into account um sort of wider emotional or visceral uh, responses to things that went on. And 
I don't think, I mean, it's tragic that she she wouldn't have cho- chosen to be that kind of a trailblazer, obviously, for that reason. But I think she did. She was that. And I think she did have that impact. Bill, what are your thoughts? I certainly agree with uh, both Peter and David in terms of her impact and the and the memories that we have of her. Uh, my thoughts uh, when you asked that question today went to her effect, the effect of her death on Prince Charles and other members of the royal family, and and uh, imagining, you know, what would have happened if she had not died so tragically? What if she had lived on? How different would things be today in terms of the royal family and how we and how we how we view them? And it was certainly it was a it was a change of direction for the entire uh, royal family, and we'll never know uh, how positive her life long-term impact could have been if she had not died. Very true. And the phone lines are open. Any of the topics we discuss here with the Zoomer squad today, we're starting with 25 years since Princess Diana died uh, this coming Wednesday. If you would like to reflect and uh, join us with your memories or our following topics as well, the numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Peter, when we talk about her legacy, there is the immediate legacy of her children, William and Harry, and her grandchildren, who she never got to meet. But what I'm enjoying on EverythingZoomer.com are the thoughts that you're publishing from Harry and William about their mother, uh, a mother's love for their sons, and how, you know, you can really see her personality reflected in their characters. Yeah, and, um, you know... um Especially uh, Harry, who who's, who seems to have inherited her a, lo- a lot of her sort of, you know, her vitality and her, you know, her sort of emotional. I don't want to say instability, but no, but, but her empathy, of, he, right? He very she much was his his, yeah. his mother's daughter, yeah. So, and um, yeah. and and he sent some loving tributes to her, and and just how he'll be remembering her this week, and. Mm-hmm. How he hopes the world remembers her, and 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 it's been it's very touching, and and uh, um, just just the way a son should remember his mother, and and it's very beautiful in a way. David, when we think about the future of the monarchy, and this is apart from Princess Diana, but perhaps uh, the way she raised her boys until they were fifteen and twelve will lend itself to the monarchy continuing uh, beyond. Uh, the Queen and uh, Prince Charles when he becomes king? Well, we're reading that Prince Charles has already declared that he wants to see when he takes over uh, a stripped down, a more streamlined version. Uh, I think the accessibility to the public, I think the interaction between the monarchy and the public in a in an age of uh, in the internet and of social media and of accessibility, so they they can't just escape into that mystique anymore. So the question is, how do you keep the mystique? Uh, what parts of it do you shed? What parts of the tradition do you keep because the institution is so important? Uh, uh, what parts do you get rid of uh, and modernize? And um, I think that's all her, that part of her influence as well, uh, which. Uh, as Bill pointed out, impacts uh, the rest of the royal family. So we're seeing a process uh, uh, evolving right in front of our eyes, and I think that she she will have seen later, we'll look back and we'll see that she had a big role to play in that. And in terms of final thoughts, Bill, you know, we have the Platinum Jubilee. We had that this year, 70 years of Queen Elizabeth as monarch. And 25 years since Princess Diana has passed. Interesting that both of those milestones have happened in the same year. How do you think, uh, in so much as Princess Diana had a failed marriage with Queen Elizabeth's uh, eldest child, how do you think Princess Diana ultimately affected Queen Elizabeth and uh, the state of the monarchy over this last quarter century and moving forward? Well, certainly it affected it, I think, in a, in a big way. And uh, there was, uh, as I recall, becoming a, a real move back to uh, great support for the institution of the monarchy, monarchy across 
uh, across Canada and across the world, uh, with Diana leaving us, uh, the uh, the shine was taken off that, and I think that the uh, royal family, the royal image, uh, has suffered uh, because of it, and uh, and and it could have been quite different if she had if she had stayed uh, alive and stayed active. All right, we will change topics now with our Zoomer squad and Jane for Libby to the controversial Bill 7. The vote is taking place likely this week, and because of the PC majority, it will easily pass at Queen's Park, making it law for hospital doctors to transfer elderly, non-acute care patients to long-term care, but not necessarily to the home where they want to go. We got your initial reaction last week, Zoomer Squad, but what do you make of the Tories sending this bill to third and final reading without committee consideration and public hearings? Uh, Peter, I'll begin with you. Well, certainly it, there there are a number of questions with this legislation, which uh, I thought would be ironed out in committee, but apparently not. And, and that's, you know... Uh, you know, the question of if, if patients refuse to be transferred to a home that's not their choice, um, what recourse do they have and, and what recourse does the government have? Uh, they, they've been sort of, um, you know, saying that there will be measures, but they, they, don't, they don't actually go into exactly um, the legal process or the, you know, the actual um, you know, process of, of getting that patient out of the hospital bed and into a home. And uh, I, I think all that needs to be solved before the bill is passed. But I, but if they're not going to committee, then um, I, I guess they'll, they'll sort of pass the bill and then solve that later. David, what do you make of the hustling through of this bill? This is an example of uh, tremendous confusion and possibly unnecessary confusion due to the um, incredible incompetence of the uh, government in communicating this. Last week, Libby asked, and nobody had a good answer on the spot, why do they even need this? Why can't they mm-hmm. just check out alternatives for care uh, if they want to? And do, why do they need the bill? Well, it turns out they need to pass the bill because they're not even allowed to under the former legislation. They're not allowed to research uh, other options for you as a patient without your consent. And so they need to be able to contact other nursing homes. They need to be able to communicate your medical condition to other nursing homes and see whether it's an appropriate fit without your consent. So the research part of it, they can do without your consent. Can they then actually move you? And um, I'm reading right off the language of the bill right on my computer screen as I'm talking to you. Nothing in this section, which is the section of the bill saying what they can do authorizes any person to restrain any ALC patient to carry out the actions. So they can't obviously physically, you know, and or here comes the money quote, or to physically transfer an ALC patient to a long-term care home without the consent of the patient. So it seems that the bill specifically said, no, they cannot transfer you without your consent. They can research the options without your consent. They can share your medical information with possible candidate homes for you to go into uh, without your consent. But when the rubber meets the road, they can't actually move you without your consent. That's the language of the bill. Now, Carp has pointed, I'm going to let my friend Bill elaborate on this. That's all very well and good, but in real life, when they have that famous dialogue with you, are you really going to be able to resist? And that is a very, very important question. But the technical language of the bill would appear to forbid them from actually forcing you out and into another right. uh, long-term care home. As the opposition New Democrats have said, you're, they're not allowed to strap you to a gurney and remove you from the hospital. What, uh, what do you say to that, Bill, in terms of concerns for CARP members and the rushing through of this bill right away this week? Well, certainly, uh, CARP, uh, CARP members have been expressing uh, huge concerns about a number of uh, areas with the with the bill, and uh, saying that uh, 
the government seems only be looking at what's best for the system, not for individual uh, patients. It had been our hope and, underst- and our understanding when the bill was first introduced that there would it would go to committee. There would be an opportunity for groups like CARP to uh, appear before the committee, express our concerns, ask our questions, and and none of this is now uh, uh, possible. So CARP members are are feeling that this is. Uh, uh, really, an atrocious move against uh, uh, older our older uh, Ontarians and uh, their families in terms of uh, pushing this uh, through. And I think the, the the government has really stumbled on this one, and they're going to they're going to pay for it in terms of pushback from uh, uh, voters. And they may have a majority uh, uh, now, but they're not going to stop hearing about this. Well, I'll tell you what: on Friday, Bill Seven and the issues around it completely monopolized free-for-all Friday. We had a bank of callers for the entire hour, and everybody wanted to weigh in. Ontarians are very concerned, not only those people who are still living at home, about their future. Everybody seems to, and and Bill, I'll let you touch on this again before I go back to Peter, but everybody seems to be in agreement that we should be putting our taxpayers' dollars toward home care and not building more long-term care facilities. Well, exactly. The whole, and this is the whole attention to, uh, uh, to family care and the, uh, the ability of, uh, families and people to, uh, assist the system in looking after, uh, their, their older family members and, and friends. And of course, this isn't assisting at all. It's just making it more, uh, much more, uh, difficult. You know, we know from surveys that up to 80% of the care that uh, patients are currently getting in hospital is provided by family and friends from the outside because we know that the uh, uh, the staffing is not adequate in hospitals. If you're going to move people uh, uh, 50, 100, 200 kilometers away, take them away from that local help, you're going to completely eliminate a huge amount of their, their care. The, the, the people who have put together this bill really don't understand understand how real people like you and I uh, have to deal with our loved ones when they're in a hospital or in long-term care. Okay, and that brings me to my final question on this topic, and I'll go back to Peter now. What's important for families, family members of elderly hospital patients to keep in mind in advocating for their loved ones uh, as Bill 7 becomes law and into the future? Well, they're going to have to be very strong advocates for their loved ones. And they're going to have to, I mean, the, the pressure is going to be on them to move their uh, the patient to a home. They're going to have to check out that home to make sure, um, you know, to make sure it's acceptable. Like a, lot, a lot of homes with open beds are ones that did terribly during COVID, you know, and people are avoiding them. And, and why do they have open beds? Because they're not very well-run homes or they're old or they're... You know, um, so so you, pay, uh, families are going to have to make sure that that they're just not being sort of, you know, pushed into one of those homes quickly to fill up beds. You know, and uh, and they they're going to have to, uh, you know, be extremely vigilant and uh, not not um, cave in to to pressure from from the hospital. Uh, Social workers. So, David, there's that issue, and there's also the money issue. Should families decide to keep their elderly loved one in hospital, what should the co-payment be? I mean, we know this has been going on for decades that these patients now have to contribute financially, but what are the questions to ask, and what is the amount that should be expected to pay if, if the individual stays in hospital? Well, I think the prevailing wisdom is it would be the same as what you would be paying if you were in a long-term care home. Uh, I don't think they're proposing to charge uh, more than that or that you should be paying more than that. But I do want to echo something Peter said that's very, very important. And this is not an either-or. If you're in a hospital and you qualify for ALC alternative long-term care, long care, it means that you belong in a long-term care home and not in a hospital bed, and you're going to get better care in a long-term care home. And the only reason you're still in that hospital bed is that there isn't the space for you in one of the five long-term care homes 
that you're on the waiting list for. But right. there may be space for you in the sixth one or the seventh one or the eighth one. Right. So the, the issue is, okay, great, where is that home and what is that home? Uh, if it's a decent long-term care home, it's, you're going to be way better off there than in a hospital, uh, even if it's not one of your top choices. So the, the issue is that much greater patient involvement and much greater research and, and really digging into where are they proposing to send uh, this person, uh, what, are the qualities, uh, what are the qualities of that home, uh, is it indeed going to be an improvement on the hospital? Uh, to Bill's point, how far away is it? There may be many scenarios in which it's quite desirable to take take up their recommendation and move out and you be in a place that's designed to look after long-term care people, which a hospital is not. On the other hand, you don't want to be forced to go you know, to where it's a, a disaster for you. So I think what we're going to see here is an increased level of involvement uh, hopefully, from patients in contributing to that dialogue and contributing to that decision. Let's get one of our listeners in on the conversation, Rose in North York. Hi, Rose. Hi. I want to say that before COVID, um, I had my parents, both of them, in nursing homes. And it was really bad to have um, the nurses um, on each floor take care of the residents. Um, and especially the people who are who need constant care. Now, if they're taking out people from the hospital who need uh, this extra care, it's going to be extremely make the situation much worse. We had a problem before. That problem hasn't gone. It's still there. To add hundreds of people, more extra people in nursing homes, it's, I think it's going to be like uh, people are going to suffer too much. Thank you, Rose, for your comments. Uh, Bill, final, or maybe you'd like to react to what Rose is saying there as a final comment on this. Well, yes, and and, and the caller is absolutely uh, right, and that's that's why we have to make sure that uh, uh, when the uh, when the officials approach a family or a patient and say we'd like we want you to move, uh, that uh, we're not just caving in, that we're not accepting what we're told. And that's difficult to do because, uh, you know, traditionally we're used, if the doctor or the medical uh, professional of any kind says this is what you should do, especially with our older demographic, we're used to saying, well, yes, they must know best, we'll do what, what they're saying. In this case, we're saying it looks like they're not being allowed by government regulation to do what's best, and families have to be really firm and making sure they're not accepting uh, decisions that are going to hurt their loved one. Okay, before we wrap up uh, with this week's conversation of the Zoomer Squad, David, you've published an article called Retirement is the Enemy of Longevity. I love the headline. Why do you say that based on I don't research? say that. That's a quote from a 101-year-old doctor in the oh, United States, the it. oldest practicing doctor in the world. Still, still uh, according to Guinness Book of World Records, if you trust them. But he came out with that quote and said that, in his opinion, um, retirement is the enemy of longevity and you have to keep going. And he was not talking only about, you know, staying in your current job forever at a salary. He just he, he meant it as a synonym for being active and remaining and doing something. Um, and he refuses to think about uh, any end to his uh, stay here among us. He's just getting up and doing it every day. And I thought that was sufficiently inspirational to, you know, throw it onto my blog. But um, there's a lot of evidence that people who remain active, people who remain engaged, we're seeing the end of retirement as we know it. We're seeing second careers, third careers, side gigs, side hustles, all of the above. And it all does contribute to longevity if you can do it. Well, and on that note, um, Bill, I'll go over to you because uh, you continue to do your work and enjoy it. What does retirement mean in the modern sense? And when is it positive? 
Well, retirement in the modern sense really doesn't mean anything. People don't just re- retire at a at a specific age uh, anymore. Uh, they may do different things. They may make decisions about what they're going to do or not going to. But but the the concept of retirement is old fashioned and not something that uh, uh, many many people are looking at uh, anymore. To do things differently, uh, certainly, and 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 uh, being of an age. Uh, may mean you're not working for a salary anymore, as David says. Maybe you're doing uh, you're doing other things, but staying active. I totally agree with uh, uh, Walter, what Dr. Tucker uh, uh, was saying. Uh, we should remain positive, looking ahead, and not not seeing it as the the last years that are of our lives, but the next five or ten years that are of our life. And uh, certainly, at almost eighty, I'm trying to uh, live that way, and I believe that uh, uh, many, many uh, of our CARP members and older folks across the province feel exactly the same way. And Peter, as a younger Zoomer, uh, what does retirement mean to you and how do you see your personal future playing out? Well, retirement mean, means very little to me because uh, I'm going to have to work till 80 to keep uh, paying the bills, you know. Yeah. Well, that's part <laughs> so, of it, right? Traditional yeah. retirement is not, a, I don't even think it's an option for me. But but I think, um, the, you know, if, if you read David's excellent blog, um, he describes the transitions of, you know, there'll be periods um, after you finish your full-time job where you'll work for a bit, and then you might travel for a bit, and then you might volunteer for a bit, you might go back to work. So it's... That, that's what I kind of view the post-65 life, where you're not working full-time, you're working a bit, you're doing other things, but it's not like a sudden stop in your career and you hit the golf course. You know, like it's it's volunteering or it's traveling or it's, you know, going to stay with the grandkids or working or, you know. So um, it, it's, it's sort of a mishmash of all those things rather than the sudden jolting stop that it used to be. Right. David, where can we read this article, Retirement is the Enemy of Longevity? Well, thank you for the opportunity. If I can promote, I have a little blog that I run. It's davidkravitz.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, substack, davidkravitz.substack.com. And I just report on interesting topics that come my way. Uh, about uh, aging, longevity, the, the revolutionizing of aging, and a uh, whole potpourri of ideas. And often I write about uh, uh, retirement and uh, how it's really not happening that way anymore. So davidkravitz.substack.com will get you there and uh, welcome welcome all your comments. Thank you very much for oh, the, that's excellent. the opportunity. Oh, of course. Uh, our Zoomer squad, uh, Libby, will be chat. Oh, actually, it's going to be me. I'll be chatting with you next Monday because it's Labor Day. I'll be in for Monday, and hopefully uh, at least some of you will join me on the holiday. Thanks, We'll be there. Okay. Good, good. Thanks, everyone. All right. Have a good week. That's our Zoomer squad. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder, chief operating and policy officer at CARP. And David Kravitz. Kravitz spelled C-R-A-V-I-T. If you're looking him up online, David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Jane, for Libby, and still to come on today's Fight Back, most doctors admit their mental health is suffering. Well, get some first-hand perspectives next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. It's no wonder doctors are burned out and concerned about their mental health. There are staffing shortages in hospitals, long waits for people to see family doctors, and we're still in a pandemic. The 2021 National Physician Health Survey was released by the Canadian Medical Association last week and reveals nearly half of respondents screen positive for depression, up from 33% in 2017. 
one quarter of physicians experience severe or moderate anxiety, and eight in ten doctors score low on professional fulfillment. Joining us with a firsthand perspective, Dr. Nadia Alam, a family physician and anesthetist in Georgetown, Ontario, who is also a former president of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. Welcome to you both. Thanks for the time. <laughs> Thank Thanks for having us. Dr. Alam, how does this picture resonate with you personally? It, it echoes what I myself have been feeling and what I've been seeing among my colleagues and friends across Ontario. We're all struggling, and to see the survey read the survey results and realize that it's not just us. These are not isolated cases. This is a widespread concern and problem that we've seen straight across Ontario and, and other healthcare professionals as well says this is a problem that we need to face. This isn't just about doing more yoga or taking more time off to to find yourself. This is a system level problem that we all need to pay attention to. So when you hear these results, I guess it is comforting in some way that you're, you know, in learning that you're not the only one. But what do you feel has led to these increased symptoms of anxiety and or depression or just feeling blue or low fulfillment? Part of it is the the usual challenge of working in a field where you have to be right 100% of the time. You have to be on your game 100% of the time. It's a very high-stakes, high-pressure environment, managing people, being with people at their most vulnerable moments. When you add the strain of the pandemic to it, where you fear for your own personal safety, as well as the safety of your colleagues and your patients, there's an added layer to that. And then on top of it, post-pandemic, the stress of trying to work in a system that's crumbling like we we are in crisis my patients can't get in to see specialists can't get in to get necessary tests i feel stuck they feel stuck there's information overload from all of the reports that come in pretty much in a constant stream 24 hours a day seven days a week so you don't feel like you can catch a break Mm -hmm. it all adds up it all adds up in a in a terrifying way Dr. Spiegelman, what about you? How do the survey results resonate? Um, so it's, I, I would echo what, uh, what uh, Dr. Anata said as well. But uh, from my perspective, uh, I work in a very busy urban community hospital in Toronto. And um, what, we've noticed, uh, what we've noticed in our, in, in our hospital is it varies a lot in terms of people's wellness and burnout and what we've created at our hospital is a wellness committee to, to really challenge the, what's happening in our society. And what we've noticed is it does, there's no one solution for everyone. Everyone has their own issues that lead to wellness. And uh, burnout is not the right term from what we've gotten feedback from our own physicians because burnout doesn't really mean too much. Like okay. a burnout could be mean, mean that you haven't gotten sleep for a week and you need a week vacation. Right. What we've noticed is the better, better term is wellness and looking at the, all the issues. And, and from a personal standpoint, the biggest challenge has been balancing our home and home life with our professional life. And especially during the pandemic where you know, my children were, weren't going to, to school and they were doing virtual care and putting increased stress on, on my wife to make sure that they're okay. When I'm working in the ICU here at Humber Hospital, taking care of all these COVID patients over the last two years. So there's been a balance uh, between work and, and, and home life for, for me. And I think we've, my wife and I have tackled that uh, in, in a way that we, we, we think we survived the pandemic, which is not over right now. And and going beyond myself, like looking at my colleagues in the hospital, it, it varies. Like, like I said, there's no one solution to tackle wellness for, for, for everyone in the hospital. Some people, it's because they're going through a relationship, at, uh, difficult relationships at home. Some people, during the pandemic, they weren't getting enough work, for example. Like some of the surgeons' wars were closed, and that led to significant uh, issues in terms of their mental health issues that they were not able to operate uh, interestingly enough, like people in my profession, uh, from from if you look at the some other surveys in terms of intensive care physicians, we're 
actually more satisfied during the pandemic because it it showed that our job and or was, was was we saved people's lives with COVID, right. and it showed that these like we actually had a meaningful fulfilled job uh, in terms of like helping our society. So it does vary from field to field, and it's varies from person to person. And I think uh, there's no obvious one one silver silver bullet for for this uh, issue at this point. And certainly you're welcome as our Zoomer radio listener to call in if you have any comments or questions for Dr. Alam or Dr. Spiegelman, if you're a physician yourself or work in the healthcare industry and have observations to share. Lines are always open, 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Alam, help us understand, I mean, in terms of hours of work, because how much you work does contribute to how well you feel or how unwell you feel. How many hours would most physicians be putting in during the course of a week? So I know that my colleagues and I, um, whether we work in small community hospitals, small community clinics, or um, larger urban centers, a lot of them were putting in about 60 to 80 hours a week during the height of the pandemic. I myself was doing that. And because, I, I mean, wellness is a great term. Compassion fatigue is another term. Burnout is another term. Whatever term you use, the, the symptoms are the same. That sense of feeling overwhelmed, like you're drowning mm-hmm. because you just don't feel right. You don't feel good. Because of that, I've cut down my workload. My colleagues have cut down my workload. I've known physicians who've just stopped working in medicine entirely. They haven't just taken time off. They've retired early or they've switched careers. Um, This is a a workforce crisis that we're facing, and we're seeing it straight across the board among, especially starting in primary care and family medicine. There are a number of physicians who, family doctors, who've just gone ahead and retired because they're so tired and overwhelmed and taking time off isn't enough or isn't an option for them. Um, they have to switch careers instead. The The workload is intense. When I said that information is coming 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it's true. I caught up to all of my reports, my charting last week. By Sunday, there were 50 more reports. And this is a small practice that I manage with 550 patients less than half of a full-time roster because I do anesthesia. For a full-time physician, you would double, triple that amount of reports coming in. Um, I'm sure Dr. Spiegelman agrees, like just the stuff that's coming at you, the the changes in policies that have to be followed, the, the constantly shifting environment, the patient complexity seems to have gone through the roof. People aren't just coming in with more chronic diseases, they're coming in with acute illnesses on top of those chronic illnesses. One's almost spurring the other on. They're, they're almost um, worsening one another in the way they play off one another. So Dr. people are sicker. Dr. Spiegelman, um, as Dr. Alam was explaining there, 60 to 80 hours a week, every week, that's not sustainable. Are you seeing a similar um, trend among your colleagues and, and friends who are medical professionals? I, I think um, there's definitely this issue of number of hours worked. And I think Dr. Alam was right that this is affecting primary care physicians or family doctors more than other specialists. However, I do agree with what she was saying in terms of the patients being very complex, the standard of care being increased in terms of what we could provide patients with new technologies, um, and obviously the demand we're getting from patients in terms of the treatment options that we have for patients. So it's becoming more and more complex with time in terms of taking care of patients. Um, and I know a lot of, from a lot of my colleagues, they're getting fr- very frustrated with long wait times, long times to get an operating room time for patients. So it's very, very complex. And it's not only, one of the points I want to make today is it's not only affecting physicians, it's affecting all healthcare providers. I'm seeing this in every nurse I've worked with, mm-hmm. and there's 
definitely a nursing shortage, which we have all heard of. And it's because of the same issue that we're talking about today. It's because of the burnout. And, you know, if a nurse could retire, they're going to retire now if they they're they don't have that mental capacity to continue working, and they're getting overwhelmed and and overburdened by by what their day to day job is. So, it's a complex system that we're working in, and I think it's getting more and more complicated. Unfortunately, with with patients having many many medical diseases, people living much longer in terms of their medical diseases because we provide. The medical care for people to live longer um, and they're coming into our emergency room with way more very acute and complex issues where we're dealing with the patient and we're dealing with their families and and the expectation that we're going to get them better and we can't get them out better every time that they come into the emergency room and that weighs on me a lot when i see a patient and they come in and we see them last time but this time you know, their heart failure or their stroke or their heart attack or whatever, or their cancer has taken over their system and there's nothing we could do to provide care for that patient in terms of survival or, or improve their quality of life. And with expectation from the patient and the family that we can provide something, and that's really, that's really where, where, where it hits me the most, actually, when I, when, when I know the best thing I could do to a patient or help a patient is tell them that there's nothing I could do and why don't we keep you comfortable at this point and mm-hmm. as opposed to why don't we do more invasive procedures or invasive mm-hmm. investigations that at the end of the day won't help you. Yeah, yeah no, I understand. can I touch on something Dr. Spiegelman mentioned? Yes, and just uh, unfortunately mm-hmm. we're coming to the end of this segment. <laughs> I could uh, spend a lot more time chatting with both of you, but uh, we're into our final minute. So I did want to ask you, Dr. Alam, and I understand this is not a soundbite solution, but I did want to ask you what needs to be done, but certainly if you have something to add, please go ahead. So the one thing that I wanted to touch on that Dr. Spiegelman brought up, he talked about about patients who are at end of life, who are palliative, the, the challenge of trying to get them the care they need, and I don't just mean physician care, but like he's noted, nursing care, personal support workers, home care, the supplies they need to be able to not just live a good life and manage their illnesses, but have a good death, right? Understand the meaning of it, be able yes. to die close to their loved ones rather than in a hospital environment, Um, be able to see people and have closure and have their families have closure. That entire system was already strained before the pandemic. It's gotten much, much worse, mainly because of severe staffing shortages straight across the healthcare environment. In terms of what we can do to look for solutions, short-term solutions, when you look at policy decisions, short-term solutions include wage increases, right, to just stabilize the workforce to some degree, and then to look at long-term solutions. So what is it about work that is no longer bringing joy to people who chose a field out of compassion, out of altruism, out of a desire to be with people at their most vulnerable moment in life and guide them through it? So what is it about that job and that environment that's no longer providing them with, with joy? And the Institute of Healthcare Improvement had this great paper talking about joy and work. And yes, wage was an important part of it, but so was support, independence, autonomy, respect, um, the sense of feeling like you can actually help the people you've, you've promised, you've taken an oath to help. All of those things matter and can be achieved step by step, but it has to be a, a strong decision, a determination to achieve those steps, not just provide sound bites, as you said. Yeah, we will leave it there. Thank you both for your perspectives. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Dr. Nadia Alam is a family physician and anesthetist in Georgetown. She is also a former president of the Ontario Medical Association. And Dr. Jamie Spiegelman is an internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. Jane for Libby. And coming up in our final minutes of Fight Back, we Ontarians are getting mixed messages about the future of the COVID-19 science advisory table. We'll see if we can find out what's really going on from scientific director. Dr. Fahad Razak. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host 
Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. There is no question most of us have relied on the guidance and advice provided by members of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table all through the pandemic. The governing PCs at Queen's Park have also been offered this guidance. The former scientific director of the table, you'll remember him well, Dr. Peter Uni, was a regular guest on Fight Back and other media outlets. And now we're getting to know his replacement, Dr. Fahad Razak. On Friday, we learned from members of the table that the group would be dissolved by Public Health Ontario on September 6th. But later that same day, Premier Doug Ford disputed this, saying the table will continue, but at the new home of Public Health Ontario. Dr. Razak joins us now to hopefully give us a clearer picture of what's going on. Hello, doctor. Hi, good to be back. And thank you for your service during the pandemic. Oh, it's been a real privilege, honestly, for all of us. It's been such a privilege. Well, I mean, uh, and you're all volunteers, right? That's right. Yep. Um, since the beginning, it's been a completely volunteer body. There's There are some paid positions in terms of the core people running it, but the entire body of scientists, 30 to 40 members, uh, an extended network of hundreds of scientists are completely volunteer. Now, Dr. Razak, um, will the, okay, let me just ask you, will there be a table beyond September 6th? So the science table, as as you know, we as Peter, as our representative, and myself, the last few months have been coming on your show. That table no longer exists um, by the start of September, and so we were within Public Health Ontario since April, and they've decided that this table is is no longer needed. They will be creating something new. Uh, I'm not sure of the details of it. I think they'll be making some public announcements in the next in the next few weeks, is my understanding. How will you personally be involved? Do you know? So I, I think it's going to have a much narrower scope. I, I mean, if, first of all, final details are still uh, pending. I haven't seen the final details. I think it'll have a much narrower scope. It won't include people as much like me who are clinicians and kind of hospital-based. It'll be more traditional public health uh, folks, which which is fine. Um, and, you know, ultimately what I've been saying the last couple of days is this is a group that was designed to provide information for the public, but also advisory to government that was supported by government, and, and there are our elected government. When they decide it's not needed, then that's the decision all of us respect. So it'll look different. The exact composition, I'm not sure. So you you don't know how many people will be on this new revised table? My understanding, and this is based on uh, preliminary meetings that we had with them, it'll be a much smaller group, and it'll have a narrower scope of work. Um, but I, again, I think I want to wait until they make their public announcement, because um, they were definitely in the phase of getting feedback from us and taking that feedback, and and we'll see what they put forward. Okay. Uh, Now, how have you met? Do you meet virtually? Um, More recently, have you met physically? Like, how does that work? We tend to meet virtually because we're spread across, um, we're spread across the province, um, and we we frequently bring in uh, people from across the country or even internationally. We've had a couple of in-person meetings, but just because of logistics and people's schedules, many of the people are busy clinicians or other professionals. We've tended to do mainly virtual meetings, and that was the plan going forward. It's, you know, the new reality of the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Premier Ford made the comment that the advisory table will have a new home at Public Health Ontario. Does that mean an actual place where people will go to meet I, I think it'll start. It'll still largely remain virtual, just by the fact that uh, when you're trying to get this many people together across the province regularly, virtual just is what logistically makes sense these days. So I think it's more of a virtual home rather than a physical home. Okay, we're speaking with Dr. Fahad Razak, the scientific director of the COVID nineteen science advisory table. In your opinion. Is the science advisory table necessary to have in its current form moving forward, or is it time to revise the table into what's going to happen post-September? Yeah, I, I think that uh, I'll, I'll answer in a couple of ways. I think that, um, unfortunately, and I hate to say this because no one wants to hear it, where we are at a high-risk phase of the pandemic again. And the reason why I say that is, um, we have hospitals that are, many of them, that are just creeping and getting by right now and some emergency rooms that have closed. And this is, you know, this is August. This is traditionally a recovery period for not only families, but also hospitals and hospital workers before a very busy and often stressful fall and winter. Um, I have never in my career seen this happen in hospitals. And this is a, 
a byproduct of many years of constrained supply, but also obviously the pandemic. Our levels of virus right now in the province, if you look at positive tests, if you look at the wastewater signal, if you look at the number of people in the hospital, all of them are substantially higher than last year, August 2021. So depending on what you're looking at, up to five to 10 times higher. So you have that heading into a school year and that hospitals are struggling. I think sound scientific advice is critical. It doesn't have to be acted on. It's advisory. So ultimately, government sets policy. But having independent scientific advice is critical as we go through what's going to be probably a very tough fall and winter. Now, can other groups provide that kind of advice? Sure, absolutely. We're, we're one group of scientists, fairly large and well-represented from across the province. But if they're able to create a similar body, then, you know, I'd like to see it succeed because ultimately what I want best is for there to be just good advice available for the public and government. And Dr. Doctor, what is your impression of how Premier Ford and his cabinet ministers receive this information uh, from the table as it stands right now and moving forward? Are they are they amenable to getting guidance and advice and then structuring public policy to go along with that? I mean, Premier Ford says that he doesn't direct Dr. Kieran Moore, the chief medical officer, that it is absolutely the other way around. How do you see it? You know, I, I, I have very little insight on what happens behind the scenes. My, my hope is that there is a place for this kind of advice. Um, I think over the first couple of years of the pandemic, our advice has been helpful. Um, sometimes it's been aligned with government, sometimes not so much. But I think it has been helpful by and large, um, especially when you've had this kind of fast-moving pandemic, a lot of new science coming out each day and all the uncertainty. Going forward, I'd like to see that continue. But but honestly, I have limited insight on what happens behind the scenes and especially on the policy side of all of this. Okay, fair enough. It's our final minute with you. What advice, guidance would you offer us as uh, residents of Ontario now and in the fall in terms of the Omicron-tailored booster, masking, how we should conduct ourselves? What I, what information, yes, could you pass yeah, along? Yeah, I, I, I would say that I think we are past the point of the pandemic when there was these black and white uh, recommendations where you have to do this or you have to do that. I I would treat this as trying to reduce risk while trying to live your life to the fullest. That's, That's what I would suggest going forward. So to me, you can get your vaccines up to date, use masks, high quality masks in higher risk indoor settings like public transit, busy workplaces, a grocery store, and that protects you to do the things that you value, times with friends and family, not missing work, not missing school, not missing a vacation that you uh, you really value. So I would say try and reduce risk wherever possible. There is a lot of virus circulating around. We will undoubtedly have challenging times over the fall and winter. And part of keeping that up to date, specifically to your question, is keeping your vaccination up to date. So when the bivalent vaccines become available, if you are eligible, please go out and get one. It's part of an approach of keeping your risk down and keeping all of the other things we value functional. So that would be my advice. And, you know, just to say to your listeners, we we are still a very, very large group of scientists that are available to give advice. So yeah, we will be calling you. On the radio or elsewhere, <laughs> just reach out. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that invitation, and thank you for your time today. Okay, all the best. Thanks. Dr. Fahad Razak is the Scientific Director of the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Jane for Libby, she is back tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.